Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Hello, On Being listeners and friends. I'm Lily Percy, executive producer for On Being Studios. When Krista and our small team first formed our nonprofit organization in 2013, On Being was the only show that we were producing, and we were one department. Now, in 2019, we have four teams and over 20 staff members, each of whom create, experiment, and innovate in digital media, podcasts, and the work of social healing. And all of this work is made possible through generous partnership with foundations and our listening community. Lisa listens and supports our work from Edmonton in Canada. I have been really enjoying On Being for the inspiration or the spark of ideas that it's given me the insights. It's also the pace of it and the kindness of the conversations that are had and the wonder and the joy of it and sometimes the pain of it as well. It feels quite intimate listening to it as a podcast. And I believe that if you like something, you should tell them. And if somebody's doing important work, you should help them. I like what On Being puts on the airwaves, and I want it to continue. And that doesn't happen by accident. If On Being's had an impact in your life, please consider supporting us with a financial contribution in any amount. You can do that at onbeing.org forward slash give. And thank you for making our work possible and for being a part of our community. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Father Greg Boyle of Homeboy Industries. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. So, oh, are we on? No. (laughs) So this is exactly the same as yesterday. We start with the mic not working. And now I tell you that we're going to do 45 to 50 minutes of conversation up here. And then we'll open it up uh, for some comments and questions from you. We need to finish today at 3.15. So I'm going to be the unhappy person who has to impose that. Um, And I get to introduce Greg Boyle. Uh, Father Greg Boyle is a Jesuit priest and pastor of Dolores Mission in Los Angeles. And for over two decades, he's created and led an enterprise which has become one of the most innovative and largest gang intervention programs in the U.S. I love that. I love the train whistle. (laughs) But it never happens when I'm in the radio studio. So it happens. Homeboy Industries helps former and current gang members turn their lives around. It employs young men and women. It employs young men and women by way of a number of businesses, including a bakery, a silk screen shop, and a maintenance business. It also offers free services from GED classes to life counseling to tattoo removal. An op-ed in the Los Angeles Times in 2012 took this title, Nurturing Hope at Homeboy Industries. How much bleaker and meaner would L.A. be without it? Father Greg became famous to a wide audience in the 1990s when a book was written about him called G-Dog and the Homeboys. And in 2010, he wrote his own very moving memoir called Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. I've been following your work for years, and I'm so happy to talk to you today in this beautiful place. Thank you. 
And so I, I, I want us to talk, obviously, about what you do, um, but really focus in on the why of it and, you know, on what these experiences have worked in you and how they've formed your sense of who God is and what it means to be human. I think you talk about those things all the time. But to the extent that I can focus even more, I want to do that. But first of all, tell us um, how you came to your call to be a Jesuit. Uh, first of all, it's so great to be here, and uh, uh, I'm so honored to be in a conversation with you. I'm a big fan, though I do have a recurring nightmare that I'm interviewed by Krista Tippett, and I'm, I'm found shallow and lacking faith. Uh, uh, this is way better than the actual nightmare I have. Well, I was educated by Jesuits, so I... I uh, um, you know, and they, for me, they were always sort of this combo burger of uh, absolute hilarity and joy and the most fun people to be around. And they were prophetic. So this was during the time of the Vietnam War. And uh, so we'd laugh a lot and, uh, and I'd go with them to, uh, you know, protesting the war. And so the combination of the prophetic and the hilarious, uh, I love that. So I... I thought, boy, I want to. I want what the, I'll have what they're having, you know. Uh, so that's what I did. It's not very deep, but that's kind of uh, uh, the reasons you join a, an organization like the Society of Jesus aren't the reasons you stay. But uh, that's kind of was my initial hook. Right. Why did you stay? Tell me that. <laughs> I got a feeling you might have. <laughs> well, you know, I. I uh, Again, it's, a, it's a, La Compañía de Jesús is a, kind of what St. Ignatius called the thing. So uh, it's about being in companionship with Jesus. And St. Ignatius, ha in his spiritual exercises, has a, um, a meditation called The Two Standards. And in it, he says very simply, see Jesus standing in the lowly place. And so that is where I want to stand, that in the end, it's about standing with Jesus uh, it's not about uh, saluting a, a set of beliefs necessary. It's about uh, uh, walking with Jesus and being a companion. And, uh, and uh, I haven't found anything that's brought me more life or joy than uh, standing with Jesus, but also with the particularity of standing in, in the lowly place with the easily despised and the readily left out and... Uh, with the demonized, so that the demonizing will stop. Hmm. And with the disposable, so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. That gives me life. That's where I want to be. I think that's where Jesus insists on standing. And, and I, uh, I find the fullness of life in, in trying to, as best I can in my own way, to stand there. So that particular place where the Jesuits took you, um, in 1986, is that right, as to the Dolores Mission? Um, which, at that time, I don't know if this is still true, was the poorest parish in the city and had the highest concentration of gang activity in the world at that time. Now, you had grown up in Los Angeles, but I think a different Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, well, I had been in Bolivia, and that sort of changed my life at, right after I was ordained, and then uh, I was supposed to go to Santa Clara University to kind of help a transition uh, students there into kind of having immersion programs with the poor. And then it didn't feel like enough once I had been uh, converted by the poor, really, in um, 
Bolivia. So I asked my provincial to send me to the poorest place we have, and he sent me to Dolores Mission, which at the time, as you mentioned, was, had the highest concentration of gang activity in the world was my parish. We had eight gangs at war with each other, and it was the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. So it had a lot of uh, issues. And I buried my first young person killed because of the sadness in 88, and uh, buried my 183rd about three weeks ago. Not all from that community, but because I work with gang members, I get asked to do this. So I, I didn't really fully understand uh, what this all was going to mean. But I grew up in the gang capital of the world as well. Yeah. Uh, in Los Angeles, and, and yet, uh, you know, I can state with certainty that I wouldn't have joined a gang. You know, I wouldn't have known where to find one if you sent me on a scavenger hunt. You know, and <laughs> and the fact. The fact that I would not have joined, I couldn't have joined a gang, it wouldn't have happened, doesn't make me morally superior to, to the young men and women I've been privileged to know for a quarter of a century. It, quite the opposite, you know, that what they have to carry and navigate is not what I ever was asked to carry or navigate as a, a, a teenager growing up in the same city as uh, they did. So we were, I was on the west side and, and Dolores Mission was on the east side. Um. You've often told the story of the first, the first kid you buried, is that right, who was an identical twin, mm -hmm. as kind of a parable about the tragedy of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his name was Rafael, an identical twin. Even the mom, I think, had a hard time telling them apart. And, but at the funeral, as he was laying in his coffin, uh, his identical twin, Roberto, uh, was peering down into the coffin as if you had slapped a mirror and he was kind of gazing at a mirror image of himself. And there was something about uh, young men staring at, frankly, the mirror image of themselves in a coffin that seemed uh, to get at what this was, at least in part. Uh, but at least that was my first introduction to the great loss and the unspeakable grief of it. And there's so much grief and so much heartbreak in these kids' lives and in the stories that you tell. And yet, um, you always come back again and again to talking in this way, you know, that spiritually, theologically, this is not so much about helping others, um, I'm saying that, but that this is fundamentally about our common call to delight in one another. I think that's very unexpected language. Well, the... Dorothy Day, I think she quotes Ruskin when she always talks about the duty to delight. And, uh, and I think it's right to see it as a duty because it, you have to be absolutely conscious of it. And, um, but it's really a delighting that uh, enters into full kinship with each other. That the idea is to how do, how do we find ways to luxuriate in, in mutuality, you know, um, I'm greatly privileged in my life to know to have known Cesar Chavez, who uh, was an extraordinary leader of a movement, but was also one of the best listeners I'd ever known. He could just, you were the only person who existed if you were having a conversation with him. But I remember once a reporter had commented to him and said, wow, these farm workers, they sure love you. And Cesar just shrugged and, and smiled and he said, the feeling's mutual. <laughs> And that's what you hope for. You know, uh, I'm not the great healer, and that gang member over there is in need of my exquisite healing. Uh, the truth is it's mutual. 
And, and that as much as we are called to bridge the distance that exists between us, we have to acknowledge that there's a, a distance even in service. You know, a service provider, you're the service recipient, and you want to bridge even that so that you can get to this place of uh, utter mutuality where the feeling's mutual. And I think that's where the place of delight is, you know, that, uh, that I've learned everything of value, really, in the last 25 years from precisely the people who you think are, are on the receiving end of my gifts and talent and wisdom and, uh, and advice, but quite the opposite. It's, uh, it's mutual. And um, I think it's really, uh, I always like hearing people tell about the things they did that didn't work out on the way to the things that they, that they know. And it's a very interesting, um, ha- when, one of the ways you tried to serve when you first arrived there was you were going to be a peacemaker, right? You were going to make truce between these warring gangs. And you found that, in fact, that, which maybe seemed obvious, wasn't right. Well, you know, a lot of th- anything worth doing is worth uh, failing at, I think. <laughs> That'll be on my tombstone. Uh, you know, we, we've, we have seven businesses, but, you know, uh, uh, not all of them worked. You know, Homeboy Plumbing was really not a huge success. You know, uh, <laughs> apparently people didn't want gang members in their homes. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that coming. But in the early days, you know, those eight gangs were indigenous in as much as they all lived in the projects and they lived in my parish, which is kind of not true now. Gangs are sort of a commuter reality, at least in Los Angeles. So it seemed sensible to me, and we'd have these Pyrrhic victories of let's agree not to shoot into each other's houses. I mean, that seems kind of not much of a victory, but those were kinds of, uh, we'd have ceasefires and truces and peace treaties, and, uh, and it was a lot of shuttle diplomacy where I would, do, I'd actually write up a kind of a thing, you know, and they, one side would sign it, the other side would sign it, and it would work for a time, but uh, I don't regret that I ever did that, and, and I never do it again, just because it, it uh, if you work with gangs, you, you provide oxygen to gangs, and, and that's not a good thing, and I can see that now. But it was a historically necessary moment, probably. So it's enough to say that, uh, I, I, honest to God, don't regret it, but... Uh, uh, at Homeboy Industries, we don't work with gangs. We work with gang members, and, and that feels uh, more sensible. Right, and is that, was that part of your path on the way to learning, to that emphasis? Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, you don't want to serve the cohesion of the gang because, you know, as I, I just was texting a homie who, uh, who um, on, in a, they've taught me how to text, and I, I couldn't be more grateful to them. <laughs> and... and and I'm finding that it sure beats the heck out of actually talking to people. So, uh, so what did he text you about today? Well, well he, he had, uh, I don't know how they do this. You know, sometimes I have a tagline. I don't know what that is. And you give a text and then there's a little tagline that you've put in that sort of permanent feature to every missive, you know. And his was the name of his gang. And so I questioned that. And, and I said, uh, why do you still have that? And and I said, if you can name a single good thing that's come into your life because of that gang, please continue to have that as your tagline or whatever the word is. Hashtag, for this I think, but I'm not sure. What's it called? Hashtag. Hashtag. Mitch, is this right? I don't know. I'm <laughs> okay. lame when it comes to these things. But, but you know, it, it forced him to kind of say, name one good thing. And he couldn't name one good thing, which is precisely the, the point. 
And so if you can't name a single good thing, then why are you saluting it? Why are you pledging allegiance to it? You know? But th- this is all part of the, the process. You know? mm-hmm. So you're having this conversation with him via texting. That's great. Um, From Chautauqua. You're ahead of me, yes, from Chautauqua. (laughs) But, um, I mean, one of the things you've, you've, one of the realizations you've said you made out of that is that peacemaking requires conflict. And while there's lots of violence between gangs, there's not conflict that you can define like you can with a war. Yeah, it's difficult because I'm sort of... uh, the dissenting voice, I think, in the country at the moment when it comes to this thing. And, and sometimes people will say to you, well, how can you be against peacemaking? Well, obviously, I'm not against peacemaking, but I'm old-fashioned. I think, you know, peacemaking requires conflict, and it's important to say that there is no conflict in gang violence. There's violence, but there's no conflict. So it's not about anything. So you want to understand what language is gang violence speaking. That's important to me. It's about... Uh, a lethal absence of hope. It's about kids who can't imagine a future for themselves. It's about kids who aren't seeking anything when they join a gang. It's about the fact that they're always fleeing something, always, without exception. So it shifts the way you, you see things. And, um, you know, it, it, somebody, Bertrand Russell or somebody said, if you want to change the world, change the metaphor. And that's kind of how we want to I think we need to proceed in something like this. So if you think it's the Middle East, you're quite mistaken. If you think it's Northern Ireland, wrong again. Uh, It's about kids who've ceased to care. So you want to infuse young people with hope uh, when it seems that hope is foreign. And as you tell their stories, it's hard to imagine where they would draw hope from. I mean, a lot of them, I don't know, I mean, it's not just that many of them have been abandoned or that they come from a single-parent home. You know, I, the stories that stuck with me were the kid whose father left them on the day of his sixth birthday while they were all waiting to light the candles for his dad to come home, or, or the, the one who's... Uh, mother literally tortured him because she reminded him so much of his terrible father. And there's drug and violence and incarceration in these kids' families. I mean, what also occurs to me, though, because you know them, right? You take delight in them and you love them. Um, I think that also gives you, again, with reference to American culture at large, a much more, well, a sense of how the lines between you know, what it means to be an enemy or a friend or a victim or a survivor, um, how those things blur in real messy human life. Well, you know, it, uh, lately I've been reading the Acts of the Apostles really carefully, and if you start to read it and think it's a, a, a kind of a quaint snapshot of the earliest Christian community, that's one thing. But what if you were to read it as a measure of the health of any community? So you, you know, see how they love one another, or uh, there is nobody in need in this community, for example. But my favorite one is, it leapt off the page to me, and it says, and awe came upon everyone. So that the measure of our compassion lies uh, not in our service of those on the margins, but in our, kin- in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship, and so that means the, the decided movement towards awe and giant steps away from judgment. 
So um, how can we seek really a compassion that can stand in awe at what people have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it? And, and I think that's sort of the key here. That's, that's, the, that's the place of health in any community. Forget Christian community. In any community, that's how you know that you're healthy. So recently I gave a, a, a talk, a training, all-day training to 600 social workers, a training on gangs. I had two homies with me, and one of them was a guy named Jose, and, and he got up, and uh, I just stood there. He's in his late 20s, and he now works in a substance abuse uh, part of our team, a man in recovery and been a heroin addict and gang member and tattooed. And, and he gets up and he says, uh, I, very offhandedly, you know, I guess you could say that my mom and me, we didn't get along so good. Um, I, I guess I was six when she looked at me and she said, why don't you just kill yourself? You're such a burden to me. Well, the whole audience did what you just did. They gasped. And then he said, it sounds way worse in Spanish, he said, you know. And, <laughs> and everybody did what you just did, you know. And then he said, you know, I guess I was nine when my mom drove me down to the deepest part of Baja California, and she walked me up to an orphanage, and she said, I found this kid. And then he said, I was there 90 days until my grandmother could get out of her where she had dumped me, and she came and rescued me. And then he tells the audience, my mom beat me every single day with things you could imagine, a lot of things you couldn't. My, my back was bloodied and raw and scarred. In fact, I had to wear three t-shirts to school every day. Uh, the first t-shirt, because the blood would seep through, and then the second t-shirt, you could still see the blood. And finally, the third t-shirt, you couldn't see any blood. Kids would make fun of me at school. They'd say, hey, fool, it's 100 degrees. Why are you wearing three T-shirts? And then he, he kind of loses the battle with his own tears a little bit. And, and he says, I wore three T-shirts well into my adult years because I was ashamed of my wounds. I didn't want anybody to see them. But now my wounds are my friends. I welcome my wounds. I run my fingers over my wounds. And then he looks at this crowd and he says, how can I help the wounded if I don't welcome my own wounds? And awe came upon everyone. <laughs> because we're so inclined to kind of judge this kid who, uh, you know, went to prison and is tattooed and is a gang member and homeless and heroin addict and the list goes on. But he was never seeking anything when he ended up in those places. He was always fleeing the story I just told you. You know, I think awe then also is an antidote to something that keeps us paralyzed like judgment, which is just an overwhelming sadness and a feeling like what's happened to that person is so terrible. How can I possibly respond? I, I wonder how you... Um, I mean, all, it, it, I think you're telling us that that's, that's how you, um, you meet that, actually, as you've said, and, and find delight. Yeah, but you also, um, the burnout comes, uh, I was having this conversation with a woman who worked in Kosovo, and uh, this was just yesterday in Key West, like, where I gave a talk, and I don't know, you know, the presumption is that 
that burnout comes from, from just being overwhelmed with what you just described, but, but it also comes with, with um, seeking and striving after success. I mean, we all want to be effective. There's nothing wrong with that. But it can't be the engine that drives what you do. You know, Mother Teresa says, we're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. So the more that you can stay anchored in your own fidelity, then rather than outcomes. Yeah. And yet in a program like mine and any other nonprofit, and people here might know what I'm talking about, you know, it's all about evidence-based outcomes, you know. And, and nonsense, you know, you just want to be faithful. You want to believe in an approach you believe in, and you want to stay dedicated to it and faithful to it. And that success is sort of, you know, God's concern. But the minute you start to save people, uh, I was interviewed recently by PBS, and, and, and the guy was saying, uh, obviously you've been such a mentor to all these young men and women. Who have been your mentors? And I said, these young men and women have been my mentors, you know? And, right. and I don't think he liked the answer because it's, and I'm, I'm not being, you know, um, cute, you know, because <laughs> I think that's honest to God, the truth, that I'm not saving anybody that uh, I, I experience salvation every day. So when I need patience, the homies uh, save me from my impatience, you know? And, and when I lack courage, they save me from my cowardice. And this happens only all the time. So something I think a lot about is how in in this culture we we've overused and watered down some of the words we need the most that actually mean the most compassion is one of them love is another um you talked about this a minute ago i mean you started talking about compassion but um i i like to put some more flesh on those bones of those words and and i wonder you know if you think about compassion or love you know are there are there people who come to mind or moments that come to mind that, that really express what these words have come to mean lived? Well, if you, if you presume that God is compassionate, loving kindness, uh, that all we're asked to do in the world is to be in the world who God is. And so you're always trying to... Uh, but that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> that's huge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and so you're, you're trying to imitate the kind of God you believe in. You, you want to move away from whatever is tiny-spirited and, and judgmental, as I mentioned. But you want to be as spacious as you can be, that you can have room for stuff. And love is all there is, and love is all you are, you know. And, and you want people to, to recognize the truth of who they are, that they're exactly what God had in mind when God made them. Uh, Alice Miller, who's the late great child psychologist, talked about we're all called to be enlightened witnesses. You know, people who, through your kindness and tenderness and focused, attentive love, return people to themselves. And in the process, you're returned to yourself. You know, um, like I have a homie named Louie who's, uh, who's um, just turned 18, and, and he's kind of a uh, difficult kid. You know, he's exasperating and he's whiny and and, uh, and he works for me, although work may be too strong a verb, but, <laughs> um, 
but homies that lately have asked me for blessings, and which is odd. It's like in the last three years, and they never, they always ask me on the street or in my office, and, and um, they never say, uh, Father, may I have your blessing? They always say, A.G., give me a bless, yeah. <laughs> and, and they always say it the same way. So, so um, this kid, Louie, I'm talking to him, and, and he's complaining about something, and finally at the end of it, he says, um, A.G., give me a bless, yeah. I said, sure. So he comes around to my side of the desk, and he knows the drill, and he bows his head, and I put my hands on his shoulder. And Well, his birthday had been two days before, so it gave me an opportunity to say something to him. And I said, you know, Louis, uh, I'm proud to know you, and uh, my life is richer because you came into it. And, and uh, when you were born, you know, the world became a better place. And I'm proud to call you my son. Even though, and I don't know why I decided to add this part, <laughs> at times you can really be a huge pain in the ass. <laughs> and he looks up at you and smiles, he says, the feeling's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, suddenly kinship so quickly, you know, it's, it's not, uh, you're not sort of this delivery system, you know, but yeah, maybe I return him to himself, but there is no doubt that he's returned me to myself. Mm. Um, you use this word spacious, and actually uh, uh, synonyms for spacious are there all over the place, especially in your memoir, when you're talking about God. God can get tiny if we're not careful. That's an antonym my son would point out. The spaciousness of God, the vastness of God, the largeness of God. You quote Hafez, this great wild God, God's limitless magnanimity. And again, I just want to say um, that's very exciting, you know, really emboldening language. But it's not... I don't think it's a language people would ever reach for themselves if they were shown the statistics about the part of town you minister in, you know, or pictures. And so how do you think about that gap, that disconnect? Well, you know, it, it, uh, I'm a Jesuit, so you know, Ignatius always talks about the God who is always greater. And, and, and that is part of, you know, the issue whenever you land on a God who's tiny or judgmental or exacting or concerned with some kind of purity code or and it sort of blows it wide open and, and, and knowing that there's a, a need to have this blown wide open all the time and so you know you find the spaciousness uh, in this grace and this vast thing uh, I, I can remember walking in the projects late at night uh, long ago and there was a kid named Mario and, and it was late at night, and I would always kind of either ride my bike or walk in the projects late, late at night to kind of see what was going on. And there was this kid, Mario, sitting by himself, 16 years old, just sitting on his little stoop in front of the crummy old projects. So I see him, and I greet him, and, hey, how you doing? And I sit down next to him, and he goes, it's funny that you should show up right now. And I say, why? Well, I was just sitting here praying. And I thought, wow, you know. Not too much of a judgment on my own prayer life, you know. And there he is. Uh, I was just sitting here praying. And I said, God, show me a sign that you're as great as I think you are. And then you showed up. 
Well, I, I just think, you know, uh, I remember how moved I was by that, you know, and it's how you enter into the vastness and the spacious place that God holds. And, but it came by way of um, knowing that the day won't ever come when I am as holy as the people I'm called to serve. That the day won't ever come when I have more courage or am no, or more noble or am closer to God than this 16-year-old gang member sitting alone on his porch. And that's important because I think that's sort of where the vastness of God resides, you know. And, and, but uh, Woody Allen used to say about death, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens, you know. And, <laughs> but the same thing is true about the vastness of God is you want to be attentive because it's happening, you know, right here and right now and right in this place. What, what your ministry so bespeaks is um, this incarnational heart of Christianity, you know, but uh, that it always comes down to relationship between people, that that's where we discover God as well. Um, well, it's relational, but it's also, you know, Walter Brueggemann always talks about the, the scandal of the particular. And this is, yeah. uh, if I could speak as a Catholic, uh, it's a little disheartening right now because it's, the, the, uh, you know, I, I think we're afraid of the incarnation. You know, we're afraid of the, the scandal of the particular. And part of it, it, it the fear that drives us is that... Uh, is that we have to have our sacred in a certain way. It has to be gold-plated and cost of millions and cast of thousands or something. I don't know. I, you know, it just this is very kind of uh, in-house, but, uh, you know, we just changed the language in, in, in our liturgy. And, it's, and it was fear-driven, you know, because people, bishops, or I don't know who makes these decisions, but they... They said, we're afraid that people will forget that the Eucharist is sacred. And so, okay, well, let's go back to the original Latin, translate it into an English that is not spoken anywhere in the English-speaking world. <laughs> and, and it's disheartening because, you know, you have to be mindful of things that are fear-driven decisions that we make. And, and so we've wrestled the cup out of Jesus's hand and we've replaced it with a chalice because who doesn't know that a chalice is more sacred than a cup never mind that Jesus didn't use a chalice because if it's gold plated and jewel encrusted it is more sacred and and a, a story I tell in the book about a, a homie who was on Christmas day I said what you do on Christmas and he was an orphan and abandoned and abused and by his parents and worked for me in our graffiti crew. And I said, what you do for Christmas? He said, oh, just right here. I said, alone? And he said, no. Uh, I invited six other guys from the graffiti crew who didn't had no place to go, he said. And they were all, uh, he named them, and they were enemies with each other. I said, what you do? He goes, you're not going to believe it, I cooked a turkey. <laughs> Yeah. I said, well, how'd you prepare the turkey? He says, well, you know, ghetto style. And I said, no, I don't think I'm familiar with that recipe. And 
And you say, well, you rub it with a gang of butter and you squeeze two limones on it and you put salt and pepper, put it in the oven, tasted proper, he said. <laughs> I said, wow, well, what else did you have besides turkey? Well, that's it, just turkey. <laughs> yeah, the seven of us, we just sat in the kitchen staring at the oven, <laughs> waiting for the turkey to be done. Did I mention it tasted proper? I said, yeah, you did. <laughs> so what could be more sacred than seven orphans, enemies, rivals, sitting in a kitchen waiting for a turkey to be done? Jesus doesn't lose any sleep that we will forget that the Eucharist is sacred. He is f anxious that we might forget that it's ordinary, that it's a meal shared among friends. Because if we don't, see that, they will be unable to recognize the sacred in the ordinary. And that's the incarnation, I think. I suppose you could cut that out later when it's broadcast. <laughs> I, will, I will decide whether that gets cut. You may stay in. Yeah, I, I, maybe in case the Vatican <laughs> listens to your show. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just a little a, a P.S. on that one. I was giving a talk somewhere where a priest was talking to me and he was lamenting a directive that had just come from a bishop that said, you may not give eulogies, allow eulogies in the funeral mass anymore. And, and the priest may not mention the name of the deceased in his homily in the homily. And again, what's the fear? The fear is that what if we don't talk about the resurrection enough? <sighs> uh, you know, where do you begin with something like that? But that's, that underscores the fact that we are frightened of the incarnation. And we're, we're afraid what we have to give up. And, and I'm all for the resurrection, you know. But, but that's what Jesus is hoping for, is that you're going to be able to, to talk about this person who has died and, and, and speak to the ways in which this deceased person has pointed beyond himself to the God who loves us without measure and without regret. That's wonderful. That's what the celebration's about. I, I might cut that out just in, case, <laughs> and just in case that bishop is listening. <laughs> I hope he is. <laughs> um, You know, I hope he's listening to you is what yeah, I meant. Okay, all right. I'm, I know that's what you meant. Um, it, in, in terms of just this idea of incarnation and relationship, I mean, it, it, it took me a, a long time into my research, reading about you and reading you, to realize that one of the transformative things that happens in homeboy industries, uh, which is a different model from your peacemaker days, is that people are simply working side by side kids who may have been in different gangs. They're sharing days and time and jobs. Is that right? I mean, and, and, and we kind of, my question also is like, does it surprise you at this point in your life that what, you know, one of the, some of the structure your vocation has taken is in starting these businesses? Yeah, you don't want to hear me talk about businesses. You know, I'm, I'm the least knowledgeable person on how yeah, to start. You, it's like, don't try CEO. this at home. You're an yeah, executive I'm a CEO. director. Oh, okay, my gosh, I'm a CEO. Uh, yeah, I, I'm missing a board meeting to be here today, so um, I could not be one bit happier. Uh, 
Yeah, I, you know, I, um, I'm kind of Mr. Magoo when it comes to businesses, so I, I don't... Yeah, okay, but look, there's Homeboy Bakery, Homeboy Silkscreen, Homeboy Maintenance, Homeboy slash Homegirl Merchandise, Homegirl Cafe. Those are businesses. You yeah. employ people. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that came, that was born as we, we began as sort of a job employment referral center, trying to find felony-friendly employers, and, <laughs> and that wasn't so forthcoming. So, so by 92, we had to start our own, we really, so we couldn't wait, the demand was so huge, and, and gang members kept saying, if only we had jobs. So, so we started Homeboy Bakery in 1992, and a month later, we started Homeboy Tortillas in the Grand Central Market, a historic kind of area in L.A., once we had two, once we had plural, you know, we came up with the highfalutin homeboy industries, you know, as if there was any industry involved in this venture, you know, so. So, yeah, and we, we've started all these businesses. And then the idea is not just to have a paycheck, but uh, I, I think one of the new things uh, that I kind of discovered, probably in the last five years, is that community trumps gangs. So it's not enough to just say, here's a job, our motto uh, still on our t-shirts is nothing stops a bullet like a job. But, but that does about 80% of what needs to be done. You know, there's still the other 20%, which is relational, and it's about healing, and it's about what psychologists would call attachment repair, you know? Because gang members come to us with this disorganized attachment. You know, mom was frightening or frightened, and, and you can't really soothe yourself if you've never been calmed down by that significant person in your life. And it's never too late to kind of gain this. So they, 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 they repair this attachment and they learn some resilience and then they redefine who they are in the world, which is really a huge task. And then we send them on beyond us and then the world will throw at them what it will, but it won't topple them because they're this renewed person. That, that, that sort of I've been doing this for 25 years. That, that's sort of the new piece in the last five years, that, that there's a task that happens and needs to be addressed and attended to, and that's the task. You know. Were you attending to it before, but not as intentionally? I mean, it was happening? That's you, right. You've named it now? Yeah, and, and, but, but things like therapy. You know, um, everybody's in therapy, and I have you know, 300 employees, and, and I have four paid therapists, but I have 41 volunteer therapist so hmm. so but that's kind of a, a new openness to that that wasn't uh, uh, true in my first 10 years uh, homies would always say oh I'm not crazy and you know the, and yeah. there was a stigma you know and then uh, I, I noticed it I don't know how many years ago maybe 15 years ago homies would uh, I'd say you know it might help you to talk about all the stuff you've been through in your life and, and then a homie once said to me you mean like analyze this at, he referenced that, that movie with Billy Crystal and Robert De Niro. And then I started hearing that. And that you talk about a tipping point where suddenly it was okay for people to be in therapy. And, and mm. Uh, mm. so I, I don't sense any kind of stigma, which is really healthy and wonderful, because they have a lot of work to do. They've, they've been through a lot. Um, I'm going to ask one more question, and then why don't, why don't we start open this up for questions and, and comments. Um, you, I've read, were diagnosed with leukemia. Would that have been a decade ago now? Um, I, I think it's probably, I think it's nine years. Nine years. But Which... as the homies say, uh, I hear your cancer's in intermission. 
And I always tell them, uh, apparently it stepped up to the lobby to buy popcorn. <laughs> Uh, may the line be long. Yeah. So I'm okay. Well, yeah. But what this means is that you, in a less adrenaline-fueled way than a lot of the people you share life with, have faced mortality. And I wonder, um, has that changed the way you move through life or even this work with them? Yeah, you know, first of all, I wouldn't trade that period of my life for anything. It was about the most graced moment in my life uh, for as uncomfortable as chemotherapy is, and I'm sure many in the audience have been through this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it because it was just uh, so intimate and so uh, mutual, and, uh, and it reminded me how to put first things recognizably first and and to live as though the truth were true. I mean, this was... Uh, but with the homies, it, it was this uh, extraordinary place of, of uh, exquisite mutuality that I, I really, uh, you know, treasure. I was reading recently about the Dalai Lama. He was interviewed in, in The New Yorker, and somebody asked him about his own personal death, and he just shrugged, and he said, change of clothing. <laughs> And that was sort of my experience when I went through leukemia, and uh, greatly liberating. Mm. And, but because I've had to bury so many kids, I, 183 kids and kids I loved, and kids I knew and killed by kids I loved, I mean, uh, boy, if, if death is the worst thing that can happen to you, brace yourself, because you will be toppled. And, and the trick is not to be toppled. The trick is to, to compile a list of all the fates that are worse than uh, death, but also uh, compile the list of all the things, and so numerous to list, all the things that are more powerful than, than death. And, um, and that's important because death hits this community a lot, and uh, kids who are doing really well you know, are waiting for a bus, and somebody sees them and remembers their past. We've had a couple of those this year, and, uh, and they're toppling. But you have to kind of make sure that folks are, uh, put it in its place. You know, I always say death is a punk. You have to just put it in its place, mm. which is what gang members, that's how gang members talk. But I think that's sort of the truth. You know, that's what Jesus did. Jesus sort of put death in its place. Was it... Um, after your diagnosis that you discovered this, this story about the desert fathers and mothers that they would, the one word they meditated on was, oh, uh, I, 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 I just, I read that a couple of days ago as I was getting ready for this and it's been so helpful for me. Yeah. They, they, whenever the desert fathers and mothers would get, uh, absolutely despondent and, and didn't know how they were going to put one foot in front of the next, they had this mantra and the mantra wasn't God, and the mantra, the word wasn't Jesus, uh, but the word was today. And that, that's sort of the key. Uh, there's a play off Broadway right now called Now Hear This. It's now, period, here, H-E-R-E, period, this, period. And that's kind of my, uh, that's become my mantra. I'm big on mantras, so, so when I'm walking or... Uh, I always, before a kid comes into my office, I always say, now hear this, now hear this, so that I'll be present. 
right here to the person in front of me. David Brooks has a kind of oive uh, column in today's New York Times um, <laughs> using Robert Putnam's uh, new research that indicates the growing divide among the children of the rich and the children of the poor in this, in this country. And he prognosticates that we will become, as a society, even more divided than we are now. So uh, I'm thinking that, that you've already told me the answer to this question, which is now hear this. But <laughs> I, I hear you. I am moved by your work. I am moved by the plight of the poor. And I am here for a week. And then I go back to my privileged life uh, in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Uh, among my Unitarian Universalist co-congregants. What is the message? What is there to be done beside shrugging my shoulders and writing a check? Um, don't stop writing the checks, first of all. I owe that to my board meeting that's happening right now. Okay, so I buy the indulgence, and then what happens? <laughs> that's yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's where I say oive. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the answer really is kinship. Everybody's so exhausted by kind of the tenor of the polarity right now in our country, and it's uh, and the division is the opposite of God. Frankly, you know, uh, there's a Mayan expression. Uh, I am the other you, and you are the other me. And any way we can uh, move closer to obliterating the illusion that we're separate. You know, I always think of Dives uh, with Lazarus. Dives is in hell not because he's rich, but because he kind of refused to be in relationship with Lazarus. That that, that parable is not about bank accounts and heaven, it's really about us. And so, you know, what's on Jesus's mind? He says that all may be one. And, and that's kind of where we need to inch our way closer, that, that we imagine a circle of compassion, then we imagine nobody standing outside that circle. So how do we dismantle the barriers that exclude? How do we dedicate ourselves in our own way? And it, uh, you know, working with Fairfield University, a good Jesuit university yeah, there. Good or anybody, you know, in your community, how do you do this? How do you participate in the birth of a new inclusion where nobody's left out? And, and, and that takes humility. You know, I, I, you know the, the, uh, that story also of Dives and Lazarus, it's about humility versus hubris. You know, humility asks the poor and folks on the margins, what do you need? How, how can I help? Hubris says, here's what your problem is, and, and here's how you fix yourself. And, and, and that kind of underscores what the division is, that it's, it's humility versus hubris. And the more we can uh, inch closer to get, you know, God created, if you will, an otherness so that we would 
dedicate our lives to a union with each other. Thank you. You know, I just want to say that question you posed so beautifully is, is a question that weighs on me. I think so many people are carrying that question around right now and um, feeling pretty hopeless about it. it I mean, it's, a, it's an open question. And, and I well, also... we're resisting the divide. Hmm? Uh, we're resisting the divide, but we don't know how to do it. Right. We privileged. Right. Folk. Not even, you know, the idea that you sh we should create circles of inclusion is we don't we're we live so separately that we don't know we don't know how to start those relationships but i i don't know i i think one thing we're we're not very we're tr not trained to do is i love rilke's idea about holding the questions living the questions until one day you live into an answer mm, and so i i i think um when we don't have the answer immediately before us we, we then despair, and I, I, I wonder if part of our work now is to hold that question and to pose it with each other, and then, you know, then yeah. in that way, maybe we become listeners together, and we the start to... The piece is wonderful. Mm. Thank you. Oh, over here. Sorry. <laughs> I was wondering... What, uh, in your ministry, is your relationship with the local law enforcement? And uh, assuming that you have some relationship with them and that there is a, uh, a message within the community of not snitching, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I, I've been doing this for 25 years, and the first 10 years was, uh, was really hard, and mainly because of law enforcement, but, you know, the, but it was really filled with death threats, bomb threats, hate mail. And, and not from gang members, because we were always a symbol of hope, but, but I think the demonizing was so complete, especially in terms of law enforcement, that the friend of our enemy is our enemy, as the Middle Eastern dictum goes. So if, if you demonize gang members, it was a short hop to demonize me, and that certainly was part of the air I breathed in my first 10 years. In fact, my first day as pastor, I was sitting at my desk and waiting for people to come by, you know, and nobody did, and I thought, well, this is crazy. So I started to walk in the projects. Again, this was quite a, a challenged area. And, 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 the, and the cops pulled me over. They pulled over and said, what are you doing here? Because I was a white guy walking in the projects, you know. And, and I said, well, I'm the new pastor. And I said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm walking in my parish. And the cops said, we don't recommend it, he said. You know? <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't listen to him. But I... I uh, so it was antagonistic at first. I guess it's better, but it's, uh, you know, demonizing is not just morally bankrupt. It's always false. It's never the truth. There are no demons. There are no monsters. That's how you know you're off track is when, you, when you're in that position to demonize. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's gotten better. You know, I think we've gone from uh, tough on crime to smart on crime to uh, having a high... Uh, uh, degree of reverence for how complex this issue is, you know. So it's, it's gotten better, and incrementally so, over 25 years. Um, I grew up in the city and was homeschooled because my parents feared for my safety. And I go to suburban church, and they don't touch the city because of their fear. And how do you combat the fear of love and compassion? Mm -hmm. Thank you for your question. Um, you know, 
I read once that, you know, the Beatitudes was, uh, the original language was not blessed are or happy are, the single-hearted or those who work for peace or struggle for justice. That the more precise translation is you're in the right place if. And I like that better, you know, because it turns out the Beatitudes is not a spirituality, it's a geography. You know, it tells you where to stand. You're in the right place if you're over here. So, you know, I, I come from Hollywood where we say location, location, location. <laughs> and it, it really sort of addresses the, the earlier Oive question, you know, that, um, that it's about location. You really have to go out. But knowing that service is the hallway that leads to the ballroom, you know, you don't want to have service be the, to be the end. Service is the hallway. It's the beginning. It's getting you to the ballroom, which is the place of kinship, uh, the place of mutuality. That place that everybody knows here. When you go there, you go, who is receiving from whom? Who's the service provider? Who's the service recipient? Everybody knows what that experience is. You know, you hear yourself say that. I, I know I'm here at the soup kitchen, but my God, I'm getting more from this. You know, everybody knows this. But it doesn't happen unless you break out, you know, and fear is, is just uh, fueled by ignorance. And, and, you, and, and, and so you have to break out of our ignorance. We have to go to the place that frightens us, you know. And, and I'm always admiring of employers, uh, especially in the early days, before we were kind of established, who would call us and I'd give a talk somewhere and, and then an employer would call me and say, okay, send me somebody. I'm, I'm scared though. I said, I get it. And then they'll love who they get, you know, some homie who's enormously eager and a good worker. And then he'll call and say, send me somebody else like him too. You know, and, but they had to take that, you know, look before you leap, but leap. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. I appreciate your personal stories, the interaction you have, but the young man on the steps and the like, but so many in the area where I come from, the way you deal with gangs is you incarcerate them. And so how much of the interaction have you had with the justice system, the penal system, and how can we in communities that want to put these things and depersonalize them away, can we do, can be done societally, congregationally, personally? You know, I don't spend a lot of time in courts anymore, except that I always uh, go as a, I will always testify when asked, and I'm asked a lot uh, in death penalty sentencing cases where there's a gang member and I'm called in as a gang expert because I oppose the death penalty. But, but I've never encountered, and I've probably done 50 of these across the country, I've never encountered somebody, a gang member who's on the stand, uh, a defendant, who, in my estimation, was not mentally ill. I don't think once. So at the minute you start to hear the profile, and they always give you the profile, you go, wow, this is a deeply disturbed, mentally ill person. No one wants you to say that. The prosecution refuses you to say anything like that. Even the defenses don't say anything like that. Why? Because then you're forced to, in the face of somebody who's mentally ill, you can only have one response. And that's compassion. And this freaks us out because we go, well, what happens to responsibility? And he knew what he was doing. And, and, and prosecutors always say to me, well, he could choose. I go, gosh, you know, not all choices are created equal. 
and a person's ability to choose is not created equal. I don't know. If we were more sensible, you know, at an early age, we'd be, um, you know, somehow infusing kids with hope when they can't imagine their future and they're planning their funerals. Or we'd heal kids who are so damaged that they can't see their way clear to transform their pain so they continue to transmit it. Or to deliver mental health services in a timely, effective, appropriate way. If we did those things, if as a society we did those things, we wouldn't be at the place we're at where, we're, where somebody has done a horrendous thing. And all you need to look back on is the last few months in this country from uh, you know, a 17-year-old in a Ohio high school gunning down his classmates, you know. This is about a mental illness. This isn't about a bad kid. But we do that, you know, and it's sort of anachronism. It's a little bit like uh, uh, Jesus healing the guy possessed of a demon. Well, truth is he has epilepsy. <laughs> and here's the medicine you take. But we're like that, even in today's world. We're so anachronistic. We just say, well, this is obviously a bad kid, and he chose badly, and he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, and he's possessed by the devil. And, and that's not very enlightened of us, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Hello. Hi. I probably have 50 questions, and it'll be interesting to see which one... 49 of them. In, uh... Which one comes <laughs> out. I, I teach in a community college on the West Coast, and kind of similarly, I teach culinary arts, so I see a whole range of individuals and hear stories that would cripple most of us what people are dealing with. But I think one of my key questions for you is, when I hear you use the word homey, could you define what that means to you? And, and before you answer that, growing up hearing the word homeboy has connotations across society. And they're not positive connotations. They're either very dumb, they're sort of like you think of someone who's either mindless and just sort of bumbling along or someone who is a caricature. And so as I listened to you, I sat there and I said, well, does homie mean friend to him? But homie may not mean friend to other people or does homie mean son or, but as you give these talks around the country, I think about what are other people taking away from that word versus what it is that that word means to you? Yeah, I, you know, it's sometimes when I go to other parts of the country, I was on a radio show uh, from Chicago where a caller came in, it took quite exception to the word homeboy. Yeah, you don't find that so much in, in Los Angeles and, and, and no thought went into this at all. You know, that, you know, I'm with a movie producer, I'm trying to get money out of him, and he says, what do you think I should do? And, and he had proposed a lot of ideas, and I said, well, I don't know, why don't you buy this old abandoned bakery across the street? Uh, we'll call it Homeboy Bakery. That's how much thought went into this. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't kind of measuring and calculating, will this have, but in the end, I'm okay with it, because it's sort of like walking in a door and coming out another door. Uh, you'll hear homeboys say, uh, you know, hey, do you know Mr. Sanchez? You know, he's my math teacher. I said, no, I don't. Oh, that's the homie right there. 
It's a way of connecting. It's, it, in, part, in the end, it's a word that does, is soaked with kinship. It's about, once, it's about connection. And, you know, and, it, and if Mother Teresa says the problem in the world is that we've just forgotten that we belong to each other, there's the potential anyway, I think, for the word homeboy and homegirl to kind of say we're connected. It's, it's a way of saying we belong to each other. And it doesn't have to do with uh, he's in my gang and he isn't. Uh, and, and that's why the homeboy community and homegirls home as well are, are, are folks who uh, experience this connection and sense of belonging with each other. I'm particularly impressed with your using the words walking in the lowly places. That's where Jesus would stand. But the question I have is, you also talk about the prophetic and the hilarious. And I recall that if you look at the Dalai Lama, Thomas Merton, many of them have this wonderful sense of joy. And you seem to have this sense of humor. I often find that peacemakers, peacekeepers, are so intense and the weight is so heavy that there's very little time for laughter. I would like to know how, how it comes that you have this wonderful spirit of joy or, or what I'd call healthy humor. And uh, could you explain a little bit how you got that? Um, it, it's like, I don't know who talked about it. Like, a, discussing humor is like dissecting a frog. You can do it, but the frog dies in the process. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I don't know. I mean, again, it's about joy and uh, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And so the intensity is, uh, you know, I think you want to avoid it, you know, because it's you want to have a light grasp on life, you know. And then in the end, it's 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 precisely those kinds of moments that that teach you something. I mean, real quickly, I, one of my favorite recently was uh, Diane Keaton showed up for lunch at a homegirl cafe, the Oscar-winning actress, Annie Hall, in Godfather movies, and she's there with a regular a guy who's there once a week, and, and uh, her waitress is Glinda, and Glinda's a homegirl, been there, done that, tattooed, felon, parolee. Um, she doesn't know who Diane Keaton is, and so she's taking her order, and Diane Keaton says, well, what do you recommend? And Glenda rattles off the three platillos that she really likes, and Diane Keaton says, oh, I'll have that second one. That, that one sounds good. And then it was suddenly at that moment that something dawns on Glenda, and she looks at Diane Keaton. She goes, wait a minute. I, I feel like I know you, like, like maybe we've met somewhere. And Diane Keaton decides to sort of deflect it humbly and say, oh, gosh, I don't know. I suppose I have one of those faces you know, that people think they've seen before. And then Glenda goes, no, now I know we were locked up together. (laughs) (laughs) And and aside from the fact that that story absolutely took my breath away when I heard it, and I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton sightings now that I think of it. That in the end, it's about something. It's about kinship. It's about Oscar-winning actress, attitudinal waitress. That you may be one. That, that's the whole thing. That God has created this otherness so that you might bump into each other and find that, that you're homies. Mm-hmm. That you were locked up together. <laughs> you know? 
Thank you. I um, have two things to say. One is, um, grazie tante. Um, I have a comment response to the woman who asked, how can we bridge? And then I have a question. And the bridging started for me um, when I saw my purpose in life as bigger than I imagined. And I am a strong, strong athlete, and I swim every day. And in Rochester, New York, they knocked this berm down, and all the people can come to the beach now. So that means that my private Cape Cod ended. And so all sorts of people of, of different color, diversity. And this one woman, um, this is just tiny compared with the amount of hundreds of people I talk to as I walk and then I swim. And this one woman kept coming to my spot at the beach and she didn't know that it was my spot. And uh, <laughs> I grew up in country clubs, so you know I had this entitled feeling of my free beach. So I said, okay, this is my spot. Why does she keep coming here? And she is covered with tattoos huge body of those extraordinary tattoos I've ever seen. And I am afraid of, ta of, of um, needles, and so I look at tattoos, my whole body kind of breaks out into a sweat. I could jump out of an airplane in a, in a, in a parachute, but tattoos are not okay for me. So I decided the next day to push past my fear and talk to her. And it started this hot, this avocation of mine is to talk to people I'm afraid of. And I started talking to her and we discussed her tattoos and then all of a sudden this light went off in my head. And I said, you know, I've been to Bali and I know people who stick swords into themselves and I've watched the trance dancers and I'm an artist and I understand all this. And my head got so huge and she calmed so much and she felt so loved with these magnificent tattoos all over her body that she ended up asking me for my email address <laughs> so we could stay friends. That's great. And my sense is that that fear is everything you're saying. It's, it's this invented um, wall because of my phobias or invented decisions that I own something and that they aren't equal to me. So that piece, I, I wanted to respond to the oive, that we really <laughs> are in community. But my question was, what is more important than death? You said there are more important things than death when you talked about a perspective. What are they to you? What you just described is more powerful, not more important, more powerful than death. That encounter, the invasion of your beach, that encounter with the other is, uh, is more powerful than death. I believe that with all my mm -hmm. heart, you know. Thank you. Um, we're, we need to finish, so very, a very quick question. Or did we miss him over here? Oh, well, I think we've got to finish. We're, we're at the, Maybe we're we can the do end. these last two. Yeah. Well, yeah. They've told us we have to be out here at okay. 2.15, 3.15, yeah. Do you want that side We have first? seven minutes. Um. <laughs> But I'm on LA time, so. So let's, let's take both questions quickly if, and then If it's true that young people in gangs are hypersensitive to and quick to respond to perceived words or actions of disrespect, can you describe how you facilitate or how they make the transition to being able to work side by side and cooperatively 
are there rules that you give to block gang habits, for lack of a better term? And if so, how do you enforce them? How do you help well, people I mean, change their Well, I mean, at Homeboy Industries, it's, you know, we're not there for those who need help. We're only for those who want it. So you have to walk in the door in the same way a drug addict will walk into a drug rehab center. So that, that's the baseline. And then common interest. You know, they all want to be able to pay their rent and their mom to be proud of them and their kids to not be ashamed of them. So Richard Rohr always says that men work things out, uh, women work things out face to face, but men work things out shoulder to shoulder. And I think it's true. And I, I observe that, you know, they don't talk it out. Guys don't talk it out. Women do. They'll, they'll, they'll say, remember that time that we threw down and, and they kind of rehash stuff. Guys don't do that, at, at least the gang members that work for me. But pretty soon, they, there's something that happens by osmosis, and it just always happens. Are there any exceptions when that doesn't happen? No. No. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. A kind of a two-point question. Would you be so kind to comment on the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the prison system? And secondly... No, we don't have time for that. I'm yeah. sorry. No, that's okay. It's not effective. Yes, what's the next one? It has to do with uh, relative to recidivism. Uh, gentlemen that get involved in your program, do you find that many of them return to their formal way of life? Yeah, we have a UCLA a researcher who's completed three years of a five-year longitudinal evaluation. And, and across the country, a program that's comparable, if there's a program comparable to this, the federal government deems you an effective program if, if you have what they call a 30% retention rate, which is to say 30% of your clients, people you work with, don't return to prison. And we've turned that uh, on its head, I'm happy to say, that we have a 70%, 75%. <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason is that it's relational, that in the end, there's nothing sterile about it. It's connective. It's, it's a sense of belonging and all that stuff I told you about community trumping gang. But the truth is, you know, especially in California, you know, if we do not prepare, prepare inmates for anything and nothing awaits them when they come out, then we've lost our right to be surprised that we, in, at least in California, we have the highest recidivism rate in the country. So it's sensible to prepare stuff for them and even more uh, thrilling and appropriate and of the gospel to welcome them when they come out and hire them at least. Thank you. We're not done yet. <laughs> We're not done yet. We're not done yet because I want to turn this into a radio show and it has to have an ending. It doesn't have an ending yet. Um, I want to do my radio thing, which I forgot. I'm Krista, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on being today in the Hall of Philosophy at the Chautauqua Institution with Father Greg Boyle, the founder of one of the largest gang intervention programs in the country, Homeboy Industries. I just want to say as we close, um, you said at the beginning, and I, I pushed back and said how hard that is, that the job is to be who God is in the world. As you tell these stories of, of this life you lead, I, you, know, you told a story in your book about how when you, and you, you touched on this a minute ago, you first arrived in the neighborhood and you, would, you expected people to come to you and you would walk around and that didn't work. It was when you started visiting people when they were in hospital or visiting people when they were in prison that they then acknowledged you as a member of the community. And that's so resonant with that beautiful passage in Matthew, Matthew 25, about, you know, 
but where, where you know, God saying, you weren't there when I visited you, or you clothed me. You were there when I, you visited me when I was sick, you clothed me, you fed me, and they said, when was that? When you fed, clothed, visited the least of these. So I think it's so, it's wonderful how you show that that is doable, um, incarnating this incarnational message at the heart of Christianity. And you probably are too humble to want to take that in. Oh, well, thank you for that. But I also feel like in the end, you know, it is about imitating the kind of, trying to imitate the kind of God you believe in, and, and, and it's natural for us to push back on that. But the, the truth is, you know, we're so used to a God, a one false move God. And, and so we're, we're not really accustomed to the no matter whatness of God. To the God who's just plain old too busy loving us to be disappointed in us. And that is, I think, the hardest thing to believe. But everybody in this space knows it's the truest thing you can say about God. I wondered if, in closing, you would read this little poem by the 14th century Persian poet, Hafez, and why you put that in your book. And the fact that it's from the 14th century, I love, because it reminds us that we've always been this way as human beings. Yeah, I don't know why I put it in my book. (laughs) (laughs) Um... And so now I'm living my nightmare of my interview with Krista Tippett. <laughs> now proven myself shallow and uninteresting. Anyway, it's called With That Moon Language. Admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not do this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? Thank you, Greg Boyle.